Hey everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Launch Control Podcast. Today we've got a really special guest, and his name is Michael McHale. He's the director of communications for a company called Rivian. And if you haven't heard of Rivian, they're a company in the electric vehicle space, similar to Tesla that's producing pickup trucks and SUVs now. And in this podcast, we'll actually go in depth with him uh, about the company's future, about his past, about what it takes to start an electric vehicle company, especially in such a competitive space, uh, and all sorts of things. So it's a really interesting episode. I uh, hope you guys enjoy. And without further ado, here's Michael McHale. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Um, nice to have you on the show. Uh, fairly well. Thanks a lot. Nice to see you. I'll speak to you anyway. Yeah. So... um. I'm uh, excited to talk to you about your role at Rivian and really all the cool things you guys got in store. I've been seeing a lot of news articles and uh, hearing a lot about you. Yeah, we um, we have been very busy being very quiet for quite a while. And uh, this year we decided it was time to take the covers off and we did that in L.A. We showed the world our new electric truck and electric uh, SUV. And I think we I think we stole the show. We were very happy with the way things went there, and uh, people seem to really like it. Yeah, I saw. I mean, it it just was flooded with news articles after that show, and I think it's something really cool. I mean, we don't have. It doesn't really seem like there's any other competitors in the space doing electric trucks or SUVs or anything like that. Yeah, that, that's right. We had taken a long look at the market before we um, decided on exactly what we wanted to deliver. And if you, if you look at the, the EV space, clearly lots of competitors are, are making sports cars, and that's just great. You know, that's fantastic. That EV is great for sports cars. You get all that torque and all that um, performance. Um, that's really good because what what electric sports cars proved was that electric vehicles could go fast. If you remember, maybe 10 years ago, we thought electric vehicles were like golf carts. Right. Sports cars came along and they proved that vehicles could go fast, electric vehicles, and that's great. And so we thought, well, but they can do more. And so we looked at making electric vehicles that could go off-road as well as go fast. So that's what we did. We looked at the space and nobody was really producing an electric vehicle that lived in that off-road, made-to-be-used, made-to-get-dirty space. And so we sat down, worked out how we could do that, and and that's what we've delivered. So how long ago did this start? I mean, it's been under wraps, it seems like. It doesn't just come about overnight. (laughs) Well, yeah, so this company has been developing this particular product for over three or four years now, actually. Uh, The company's been in existence for uh, more than that, since 2011 time. It has 600 employees. It's very uh, difficult to keep 600 people quiet when they're so excited about what we're doing, but this isn't a small garage setup. We have um, quite a distributed business around the states. We have our engineering and headquarters in uh, Plymouth, Michigan. We have our battery technology in uh, Irvine, California. We have a connected car business in San Jose, California, and we have our manufacturing plant in Illinois. So we, we have quite a, a setup ready to go. Uh, so it's been it's taken uh, four or five years of good solid planning to get to where we are now, and um, now we're just planning to put that those final ideas into production. Yeah, I think I read an article. You guys bought the like the Mitsubishi plant, the old Mitsubishi plant. Yeah, that's right. It um, it 
we were looking at somewhere we we could get a, a fairly quick setup going, and of course that plant was producing cars up until just a couple of years ago, and so has all the infrastructure there, all of the things you need to make vehicles ready in place, and we just need to make it now ready to make Rivian vehicles. Um, but we were very happy with it. A very skilled workforce in town, and a town in Normal and Bloomington, Illinois, dedicated to making cars. So they know how to do it. They understand the process. And uh, it's great to be back and revitalizing that town, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that saves a lot of hassle, too, in setting up a uh, facility. You don't have to go through and develop, you know, 90% of what's necessary. So that's, that's nice. That's right. And logistically really well spaced. It's right in the center of the country. So it serves both port, both uh, coasts really well and has a great um, supply base around it that was there in, in its previous life and so just ready to go again. So how did you keep this all under wraps for, what, seven years now? It seems like I haven't heard of you guys until just recently, and uh, <laughs> it's everywhere now. <laughs> yeah, so, so our company is run by founder and CEO RJ Scaringe. RJ is a an automotive genius, in my opinion, and even though I work for him, I'm, I'm still allowed to say that. He's, <laughs> uh, he's 35 years old and has an MIT PhD in automotive engineering, really knows the space. And I think just as importantly, has brought a team of people around him who were prepared to do whatever it takes. So it's working nights, working weekends, working seven days a week, working through birthdays and vacations and all of that stuff to get this um, product to the place it is now. And I think that's created this real sense of camaraderie. So everybody knew what we were doing, nobody wanted to break the spell. So everybody stayed on side and, and put it over the line in LA and then they could all finally breathe that sigh of relief when the car was out there and, and get the, it got the reaction that they knew it was going to get. So I, I think it was a moment that everybody built toward for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure that was really special for you know you guys and your employees is to finally be able to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the engineering team, of course, you know, testing for so long. The design team had done such great work on design that they wanted uh, they wanted customer feedback, and we'd get one or two people into the office, and they'd see it, and they'd like it, and that felt good. But the big test, of course, is when you put it on the world stage and, and to see what reaction is, and, and reaction was incredibly strong. Yeah, I noticed. I mean, most of the news articles, I think every single one I read was pretty positive. Um, I mean, of course, you'll have people that say one thing about the design and other people love it. And I think that's something really interesting we should talk about is the design's really futuristic, in my opinion, and looks pretty interesting. How did you guys come up with that? Well, yeah, and that, that's really interesting. I um, spent some time working in design a long time ago in the automotive industry, and it's an, it's an interesting process that you go through, especially in the electric space, because Everything in that vehicle above the wheels is blank space. It's not like a, an old internal combustion engine setup where you have, you know, two ton of um, powertrain up and above you at the front of the cab. It isn't like that. There's nothing there because it's all battery pack. It's a, it's a skateboard. If, if your listeners think of it like four wheels and a battery pack, the engineers hate when I say that, but it's <laughs> visually true. Um, you have these four wheels, and in between those four wheels, you have this thin sandwich of battery pack. And so everything above that is free space. And so what that means is you can design anything to go above that um, that space. And so you could make it really futuristic. You could make it look like a rocket ship or a cruise line or anything you wanted. Uh, but customers want vehicles to look a certain way. 
So customers understand what an SUV looks like. And so when they look at profile and proportion, they say, okay, that's an SUV. I understand what that is. And the same when they look at a pickup truck, they say, okay, it has a bed and a front cab and, and that's a pickup truck. So we didn't want to move too much away from those proportions, but at the same time, make it look a little bit different. And so what, when we saw it in the studio, it looked very much like a pickup truck. Um, but when we put it next to some of the pickup trucks that are out on the market today, man, it made those cars look a hundred years old. It, it, the, the proportions are, are still there, but it has moved the whole design language forward by two generations in the pickup space and the SUV space too. And I think, um, one thing we've really been clever on too is making use of the space that the proportions have had required us to keep. So in other words, it has a, um, it has a hood, uh, but under that hood, there's no engine. And so under that hood, we can now make, um, uh, storage space. So you can lift the hood on, uh, a Rivian R1T or an R1S, and there is a terrific amount of storage space there that's powered. And so that will become for most of the time, the place where you put your sports bag or even more than that. It's fairly big space. And then underneath the cab, just behind the cabin underneath where the mechanicals would usually go, there's a huge pass-through storage area. We call it our gear tunnel. You can put shortboards in there, strollers, golf bags, and it's accessible from either side of the vehicle because of that space I'm talking about. So while these cars are designed to remind people that they are SUVs or trucks, they're also designed for great usability and then also to take the language on a little bit further and to say, okay, this is a truck, but this is the truck of the immediate tomorrow and not the truck of two generations ago. Yeah, it's interesting because there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, development or any uh, new technologies come out for pickup trucks. I mean, the general design language has been pretty similar and, you know, you've got the, the cab in the front and the bed right. in the back. Yeah. And if for listeners that may not have seen uh, this, the truck, what he's talking about, the gear tunnel, there's a huge opening uh, that is accessible in front of the rear tires. So it's actually kind of in between the bed and the cabin, uh, so behind the rear passengers. And it's a huge space. I mean, you could fit you know, a bag of golf clubs in there, I think. Uh, I yeah. haven't seen pictures of the under the hood, but I'm guessing that's like a car's trunk. Yep. We call it a frunk. It's a, it's a front trunk. And I'm sure there's a better word than frunk, but that's what everybody keeps saying. And, uh, yeah, it's, there is so much space in this vehicle. And you know, we looked at pickup trucks and they're great. And design has become a little bit conservative in that the manufacturers have hit a really winning formula and nobody wants to change from it, which is understandable. And, and so design has stayed in a certain way for a while. But when you look at the way people use trucks, there was just the bed. And if you wanted somewhere to put your bag, you had to throw it in the rear seat if you had the crew cab, you know. And that's really, you know, not the best use of, of a vehicle. So with all of this extra space now, we have that um, in place. And it's, it's, it's usability is terrific. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it also helps because if you have bags that you don't want to get wet or something like that and you've got a full car in a regular truck, you'd have to throw it in the pickup but in the bed. But if you've got a front trunk, then just throw it in there and you don't uh, don't have any wet bags or luggage or anything like that. And it's all lockable, securable too. Interesting. What we haven't talked about yet is performance of the vehicle on and off-road. We can talk about that if you like. 
Yeah, and I think um, you know, from another manufacturer's point of view, it seems like the pickup truck market has actually really taken off the performance market. And so, uh, did that have a play a factor in you guys deciding to go into this market, or? Well, I, I, you know, we decided to develop electric vehicles a while back, and we wanted to put them on a fairly big platform so you get a great range. So our vehicles can get over 400 miles range with the right battery pack configuration, which is pretty impressive. Okay, so um, yeah, we decided to create when we decided to create an electric vehicle. The first thing we thought about was battery range and size. So we wanted to produce a vehicle that was you know, fairly big. These are fairly big vehicles in order to get the best range. And, and our vehicles will produce the Rivian R1T and the R1S will produce over 400 miles range with the right battery pack. But what that, of course, also gives you is a lot of power and instantaneous torque. And so we looked at the configuration again and said, well, look, if we have this huge battery pack and we mate it to quad motors, which means a motor, not at each corner, but a, a motor for each wheel, they're actually inboard, gives you great balance. But a motor for each wheel, we can get over 800 horsepower from this vehicle. So <laughs> then, you're, right, then you're producing a vehicle that's got 800 horsepower and 400 miles range. And, and it's okay, so we've got those two things. And because the motors are inboard, that gives us really good wheel articulation because it has long drive shafts. That gives us really good off-road capability too. And because of the quad motors, we get individual wheel control. So, okay, well, now we have an off-road vehicle that can do 0 to 60 in 3 seconds, 800 horsepower with 400 miles range. Well, that's quite a winning combination. So yeah, so the vehicle seems like it, it kind of does it all. It it can uh, it can go off road. It can provide a lot of storage space. What do you does it have a good towing capability as well? Yeah, so towing uh, is up to eleven hundred pounds. It's incredible numbers. They um, because electricity gives you that great torque. Um, the, the towing numbers are pretty impressive. Now, of course, you lose a little bit on range when you're towing, as you would do on fuel economy if you're towing. So if right. you're towing a regular um, you know, piece of equipment, a trailer or something like that for normal towing in normal use conditions, you might lose 30% of your range. Okay. So, you, I mean, it's not anything crazy, though. you still got a, several hundred miles that you oh, can that's tow. Right. That's right. And the recharge is so fast that we were talking about this yesterday. Somebody wanted to drive from Philadelphia to Detroit for some reason. And I live in Philadelphia and work in Detroit, but it wasn't me. And... Uh, you know, we were talking about, so, okay, you wake up in the morning, you get 400 miles range, you drive for 400 miles, and then you can recharge the 200 miles that you need in 25 minutes. So you can add 200 miles charge in 25 minutes on a fast charge. So you get 600 miles of driving with a 25-minute break. That's fairly good go. And is that just with, like, a, a normal charger? Or do you have uh, something similar to Tesla's supercharging it's not. It's it's the fast charging system. It's not Tesla supercharging system, which is a different system. But it's the DC fast charge system. But a home charge system, a regular charge system, will get you a full charge overnight, and the fast charge system will get you eighty percent of charge. Uh, we don't like to talk percentages because the battery is so big; it's like filling a huge pool. But you can get um, two hundred miles range in twenty-five to thirty minutes. Wow, that's incredible. How does how would that actually work? Do you you have a cord that you keep in the car and you go and you plug it in somewhere or 
Well, the cord usually comes with the uh, charging system, and so you just pull up to the charging system and, and plug in and go. And get oh, okay. So the the uh, systems at like different colleges and things like that. Yeah. So there's a uh, there's a set of standard charging systems that are being created across the country through Electrify America, which will be the most prevalent and common charging system. And um, Tesla, obviously, everyone knows about now because they're first again. But in the next two years, Electrify America will put thousands of these charges across the states. So it won't be an issue at all. Okay. And is it similar to a gas station where they charge for it or how does that work? Yeah, you'll pay, you know, um, a few dollars for that charge like anything else. But um, uh, it's it's a, a more efficient system. I don't know the exact pricing to fill up, to be honest. But it's a more efficient and effective system than filling up with gasoline. Okay, yeah, and I think with Tesla, when they first came out with the supercharger network, they were offering it for free, and then I think they realized that they were going to lose a lot of money if they did right. that. <laughs> so they're not even offering that for free anymore. I mean, it makes sense. you got to pay for electricity anyway. So. Right, right, right. So what is the weight of something like this? I mean, it's got a huge range. It's a big vehicle, a lot of batteries. What does something like this weigh? Yeah, this is not a light vehicle. So this is a 5,900, 6,000-pound vehicle, but you don't feel it because the torque is so terrific uh, and the balance of the car is so well-proportioned that you really don't feel the weight. Well, and the weight it seems like it's like all down low, so you'd have a pretty exactly. good center of gravity. All below the wheels. So if yeah, if you think about driving the vehicle, the, the weight the, of all the mechanicals are all below the top of the wheels. So the the handling of the vehicle is terrific. So yeah, when you when you had when you add the handling onto the range and the acceleration and the articulation, and of course everything on the vehicle is is water sealed. So you can drive this vehicle in three feet of water, and the battery pack can be completely submerged and uh, so that's another attribute that the vehicle has it it's quite a package you know yeah you don't need a snorkel anymore to, <laughs> to go off road in the water yeah. so have you taken any of these uh the test vehicles off-roading yet i have driven a couple of the mules and they are astonishingly good i'll, I'll be honest with you and i i must say i've been in the business a, a long time and this is easily the most exciting thing i have ever been part of that, that sounds awesome i mean the uh the raptor market is really huge and they they have a hard time even keeping those on a lot so i, I think there's definitely a market for these high performance vehicles and uh i've noticed with especially with the big trucks is that you you can get you know really high in price but they don't have much going on in terms of interior or or tech um, I mean, some of them are getting like lane assist and things like that now, but they're never really on the forefront of that. And I noticed with you guys, I mean, the cabin's beautiful. It, yeah. it, it looks like you guys really, you know, try to make this the whole package where you've got tech, you've got, you know, a capable vehicle and you have the interior. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the interior qualities and, and some of the, uh, processes that went into that? Yeah. So the, 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 the space that Rivian vehicles will occupy is a premium, high quality, but not necessarily overwrought space in that the Rivian pickup truck might appeal to somebody who's always wanted a pickup truck, but didn't particularly feel drawn to the higher testosterone, you know, 
big and brawny uh, play that the other makers have. And our pickup truck is is much more accessible, much more invitational. Um, we, we, you'll find over time that Rivian will be a good brand for you to partner with. We'll, we'll be a responsible, um, positive part of your life. And, and I think that when you reflect the interior of the vehicle and you think about it in the space of, let's say, a Range Rover or um, – or a Porsche Cayenne, or that kind of interior that's that's more premium, but uh, maybe slightly more harder wearing than than you might find in other vehicles. So some vehicles over time started off being very hard wearing and very much built for use, but have become more more premium and and, and less l- less about use over time. Our vehicle will always be premium and will feel nice and beautifully designed and, and the top levels of quality. But you'll be able to wipe down the interior after you've used it. So if you've got dirty boots in, in there for the day, that's okay. Because the materials we'll use in the cabin will allow you to wipe down every day. Yeah, I think that's really important. There's a lot of these really high-end luxury uh, SUVs coming out now, like the Lamborghini Urus and uh, the Bentley Bentayga and the Rolls-Royce Cullinan. And they're designed – they have a lot of off-roading capability, but – uh, you don't want to get the interior dirty on the lamb's wool carpet, for that's example. Exactly, that's exactly right. So we, we have a thing called invitational versus presentational. And a lot of brands out there, and they're fine. That's fine. They do a great job, and it's not disrespecting those brands at all. They're presentational brands. They're for looking at and for being admired in as you drive down the street. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. Our brand is more invitational. It's about inviting you to go out for the day. So if you see a Rivian in your driveway, you should be inspired to take it out for the day into the mountains, get it dirty, use all of its off-road capability, bring it home at night, wash down that interior and start your day again tomorrow. So I'm just I'm looking at the the truck and the SUV here. Are they built on the same platforms just with a different uh, uh I guess over overhead piece. Yeah, more or less the the wheelbase is slightly different and and that talks to our uh, business capability, if you like. Over time, we have this ability to uh, offer the skateboard platform to other industries or other car makers who might want to build a platform on top of our skateboard. And we'll do that as long as it doesn't touch on our brand. So if you know, if a mobility company wanted to produce a highly connected, highly capable, great range vehicle, in their space, we can do that for them, but as long as it doesn't touch the Rivian brand space, we yeah, always, I, we'll always protect what Rivian is. But we can offer that technology to other makers. Yeah, I don't think people realize that a lot of the companies that are in these electric vehicle spaces are technology companies as well. I mean, Tesla sells a lot of their battery technology to people completely outside of the automotive space, and uh, what's the, there's a there's another company. Uh, Remock, they're they're producing you know the uh, high performance supercar electric cars, but they really their majority of their business is selling components to companies like Mercedes or to you know anybody that needs battery tech. Right, it's a specialization uh, thing. So we've become a specialized you know EV manufacturer, which includes connectivity and includes battery manufacture and battery assembly, which we do ourselves, by the way. And uh, so, so that's our core competence. And you may be a car company that doesn't want to develop that in your own space, or you may not even be a car company. You may be a 
coffee company and you want the vehicle to drive around, you know, San Francisco delivering coffee for you. And we can provide that service too, because we have this great connectivity platform, this great, great cloud computing platform on the vehicle, and also the the underpinnings of the vehicle you need. Now, if you are that coffee company, we may despec the vehicle because you won't need the off-roading capability. <laughs> it's an R one two truck, but right. you see, you see the point. You see where we're going with that. Yeah. So you guys make all of the battery tech in house. Yeah, um, the batteries are uh, standard um, production batteries. Uh, they're twenty one seven hundred batteries, but the way we assemble them is is unique, and the way we develop the architecture to cool them, which is very important, is is unique too. We assemble our batteries in a very dense way, in a very durable and, and rigid way, and then we have these heating and cooling plates that run top and bottom of the batteries that can individually cool various areas of the battery pack if we can sense back at base that your battery is overheating or or, or or is too cold for optimum performance or we know you're going somewhere that's about to get hot or cold we can preempt that and preheat or pre-cool the batteries to keep them running at optimum level and that's part of the range capability of the vehicle range is is one challenge but range with temperature variation is another Okay, and so the uh, I guess the batteries themselves, if they're kept at a certain t- operating temperature, it uh, increases the range then. That's right. You want to keep them around ambient for as long as you can. And I've seen a lot of news articles that talk about you know AI technology with your batteries and things like that. Is this kind of what you're talking about, a, uh, an algorithm that smartly scans and sees what batteries need improvement, or is that something else? No, that's, that's a similar thing. The the, the the vehicle over time will learn your habits. So it will learn if you are a fast charger and you like to fully charge every day and it will create a window of battery charge for you because we never really want the, the batteries to be fully depleted or fully charged because that tends to hurt the ions over time. And if we know that you're a fast charging guy, we'll give you that window of charge. And if we know you're a trickle charge person that comes home every night and usually trickle charges their batteries, will give you that window of charge too. So it's about battery battery maintenance and our software engineers are, are very clever at that and they, they have these these great solutions to keep the batteries running for a long time. So uh, we talked about some of the uh, interior specs and I mean this car is loaded with technology and uh, bat- AI batteries and all those kinds of things you see in the headlines. Can you talk a little bit about um, what providing an electric truck has given you guys the ability to add in terms of you know tech features do you like lane assist do you have any any aspirations to do you know automatic driving with these cars any things like that yeah so we we will deliver these cars with uh level three autonomy um and level three means hands off uh but stay engaged you know so you can be behind the wheel there will be a wheel um but you can let the car take care of most of the driving for you as long as you're still around level four and five does get really hard and i think people are starting to now be a bit more transparent about how hard that is you know level five is it's like landing on the moon it's it's hard stuff but the level three i think will that most people will get most use of most of the time will be in a rivian at launch and is that what is is out in I guess Tesla's right now. Uh, Tesla, I can't speak to that. That's their thing, but I think that they have some level three capability in the vehicle now, possibly. But you'd have to speak okay. To 
that. And so that's just basically where you can have hands off and the vehicle will stay in the lanes. And Yeah, stay in lane, get you home, uh, but you have to stay engaged. Uh, it's it's not yet time to take a nap in a level three. <laughs> yeah, we've seen a few articles of uh, what happens when people do that. <laughs> so are you guys only going to be targeting the truck and SUV market, or do you have plans to kind of expand into other things in the future? Yeah, we do. We um, we The beauty about the electric drive platform is that you can alter the wheelbase um, fairly simply. And it's just a matter of reconfigurating the battery packs. So in the future, we can imagine more Rivian options available to you. Uh, it, it depends on on um, on who you talk to, um, if you listen to the press. But the press is speculating about rally-inspired versions of of um, Rivian sort of sports coupes in the future. That's that's not my speculation. That's media speculation. But I think it's, it's fun to see that conversation going on around our brand yeah i mean it, it's similar to i think what ford has done with the raptor brand i, I think uh it'd be interesting to see if you guys come out with some performance specific you know models or anything like that yeah i think the basis of our brand will always be adventure and adventure means different things to different people sometimes it can mean you know hitting a trailhead and going fishing for the day other times it can mean you know um fairly serious off-roading up the side of a mountain other times it can mean you know heading out to the beach for the day so whatever type of vehicle a rivian offers you will be based around fulfilling your day's adventures yeah, I mean, I've even seen uh, there's a truck racing series that races with uh, with Indy cars, and it's called I think Stadium Super Trucks, and they have just you know huge jumps and they yeah. race on the actual racetrack. So yeah. maybe uh, we'll see what a Rivian uh, Rivian Super Trucks here in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I I am looking forward to the first time that SEMA, which is you know the the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association right. event, uh, I'm looking for the first SEMA where Rivian vehicles are on sale and see what people do with them because I think that's going to be a fascinating space. Hopefully we'll see some what wide bodies and <laughs> all sorts of things. <laughs> people can get very creative, that's that's for sure. So what exactly is your role at Rivian? I know we talked and I think your title is Director of Communications, but you said you've done a lot in your time, uh, manufacturing, technology, all sorts of things. Yeah, I work in communications now, which is basically talking to the media and folks like yourselves to tell people our story, which I really enjoy and I think is my natural home. I, I enjoy being in this role a lot. But I started um, oh, a long time ago when I was very young in engineering and I was in I was a toolmaker, actually, in my first few years, which was making the big heavy presses that stamp out the sides of the vehicle or smaller components of the vehicle you know those big presses you see in factories right for like the sheet metal and metal stuff yeah i did that for a few years and then you know staying college kids i went back to college and got my engineering degree and moved into design for a few years and, and worked in vehicle design uh, specifically on, on exterior design bumpers mirrors that kind of stuff on vehicles worked with the design folks on that did that for or a few years, and then moved into more of a corporate costing environment where I would visit manufacturers who were selling vehicles to us, selling components to us, and look at the cost of manufacture, how we could make it cheaper, did we need all five bolts, you know, could we take it down to four bolts, and so on. 
was a cost down job and it was a lot of fun too. And um, I used to work in a shared office with the marketing team and they, the marketing team would come back with really cool t-shirts. I was at Land Rover at the time. And they would come back from events with really cool t-shirts. And I said, well, how do you get those t-shirts? And they said, well, you have to be in marketing. I said, right then. <laughs> so, so I left engineering and moved into marketing. And I've worked in corporate affairs and government affairs and uh, industry relations for all the last 20 years. Um, but the, and I, in between times, I've worked in manufacturing, in um, line balancing and various stuff on in in the manufacturing plant too. So what that's done, I think, is given me a really good appreciation of how hard everybody has to work to produce a car. It's it's a very complicated process with lots of people doing lots of great work. And off the end of the line comes a vehicle that people um, hopefully want to buy. But that doesn't happen by accident. That starts in research eight years before and then through pre-production planning and costing uh, all the way through design and manufacture to production it's it's a fascinating industry to me still is after all these years uh, and i'm really happy to be uh, on the end of it where i can tell people about the great stuff we do yeah i think people really take for granted when we hop in our cars just re- all that went into developing and designing and engineering and yeah. you know paying for bringing this vehicle to market and right. uh, something we get to enjoy but we don't really think about much well there's i mean the the, the biggest change i think in the industry in the time i've been around is the amount of legis- legislative requirement so most of what everything on your vehicle has to meet some kind of legislative rule. You know, it could be the size of your mirrors. The size of your mirrors have to comply to a regulation because there's a minimum size of mirror and quite right too. But what that means, of course, is that the mirror designers are then restricted to what they can do with mirror design because they can only make it so big and so wide or so small and so narrow before it breaks the regulation. So that's why sometimes you see cars get to look a little bit samey. And that's because sometimes it's because of regulation, which means that the front of the vehicle has to pass certain crash test criteria and so on. And the other thing is packaging, because people want a vehicle to look and feel a certain way when they get into it. Headroom, legroom, width, shoulder room, elbow room, all that stuff. So once you put in the customer requirements, what, what they're looking for, and then you factor in the legislative stuff, what the government needs to make a vehicle safe and right for the road. You know, that's a fairly restricted package. And then the designers get to go to work to try and make something unique around that space. It's quite a challenge. And, of course, it has to come in on cost, too. So you can design a vehicle to look beautiful. Uh, For the same money, you can design one to look not very nice. You know, we've seen both examples of that. But sometimes designing a vehicle to have certain features costs money. So, you know, um, when review cameras were mandated, that's great. It's good for safety. But there's a $200 cost in that. That somebody in the company has to factor in and add to the price of the vehicle and hope we can still make a profit. Right, and try to hide it on in the back of the design somehow and make it not just stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> exactly right. You know, all of that stuff has to come into play. And in the end, you know, the consumer has to be willing to accept it, um, it um, uh, uh, the way you've solved that problem. And it, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating space. Yeah, and so have has your role at Rivian always been director of communications, or did you start somewhere else? 
Oh, when I've been in? there. I just I joined in eighteen, so I'm fairly late into the team. Uh, they have been going as a company for nine years, so they've been toiling away for a long time. And prior to this, I was at Subaru, and prior to that, Land Rover and BMW, and I, I was at Mini actually when we launched the Mini Cooper here a long time ago. So I've had a f- fair amount of experience of launching vehicles, which I think was the appeal of this role, was to come in and help them launch it um, and, and bring us to market. So that, that's my role. Um, and yes, like I say, I've, in the US I've worked for BMW, Mini, Land Rover, and Subaru, and now Rivian. So how did you, I mean, how did you first learn about them? How did you get in touch with them? What made you interested to work with them? <laughs> Well, Especially I mean, being so quiet, you know, they were under wraps for so long. <laughs> you know, I had I had known about them because they had purchased the Mitsubishi factory in Normal, and that, you know, was a significant buy. So that sort of impressed me. And th- this industry is quite close and quite connected. So I was talking to somebody, and they said, uh, here's someone you should speak to, and suddenly I'm talking to somebody from Rivian. And within, oh, man, within five minutes of being on that call, I just knew this is where I wanted to be. They um, they had such enthusiasm and vigor and energy and drive and clarity around what they wanted to do. There was no way I didn't want to be part of it. So um, that meant working in Michigan uh, three days a week. That, that's perfectly fine by me. And that's what I go and do if I'm not needed anywhere else. And, um, yeah, I, I jumped on with them earlier this year. And, yeah, it's, it's, so far it's been terrific. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you you really love uh, the company you work for, and that's always important, I think. Yeah, it's it's a really easy company to love. Uh, the the people in there have such genuine, honest, genuine um, commitment and belief in what they're doing that it's it's I would say almost impossible not to get carried away, and I mean that in a good way not to get carried along by that energy because it's um, it's infectious and it comes from the top. But the guy who runs the company, RJ Scaringe, is a um, is not only a genius of what he does, he inspires people to want to help his company succeed. And I think that's another kind of genius. And I think he does it unconsciously because he's just that guy. So every day we all want to go to work for this guy. And it's terrific to work for somebody who um, – who has that belief in what he's doing and he's quite happy to share that belief with you. It's, it's a, it's a great moment in life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important for all businesses in general is just to kind of let that enthusiasm trickle down and it's infectious. You're right. I mean, it gets the people actually do a better job if, if they can see that you're interested in what you do. That's right. That's right. And, and we all believe in the same thing. And, um, I tell this very quick story. I've not been there very long. And if, if you stay late at Rivian, they feed you, which is nice, you know. So we're um, eating pizza one night and I'm talking to one guy. And I said, oh, you know, how many nights have you done this? And, uh, you know, been here till 10 o'clock. And he said, oh, you know, maybe five times a month <laughs> for nine years. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> You've done a lot of these late nights. Yes, sir. And that's just what they do. And nobody complains because it's it's what we do. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you're interested in what you do, it, it doesn't really become work at that point. You're passionate about it. You want to stay late and finish whatever you're working on. And That's right. 
That's it's right. nice that they are able to cultivate that in more of a corporate environment. It, it is, and it it really doesn't feel like work. It feels like what we get together every day to do. So, do you think that uh, contributed to letting this what uh, seems like a small company compete in such a competitive and costly bracket? Yeah, I think I think belief in what you do and belief in your people is is core to everything because you know even when we go to talk to investors and and they look in the eyes of RJ Scaringe who owns the company or founder and CEO of the company of course you know he's going to believe in what he does but when they look around the table and they see that same belief and it's not you know I, I wouldn't paint it in any way as um, as any kind of zealotry. It's a it's a confident belief in what we're doing because we understand what we're doing and we and we know what we're doing. When the investors see, you know, not just RJ but his first line of ten people have that same belief, and then the next line of ten people have the same belief, and so on and so on. And when they walk around the company, they can feel it in every part of the company. I think that that's what convinces them, aside from everything else, that we will succeed in what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's super important, and maybe maybe I'll have to talk to him in the future. But uh, it'd be interesting to hear kind of the story of how I don't know if you know this how Rivian got started from if they started from another company or you know, I wouldn't even yeah it's it's I know right you start to think well I've wasted my life because he he started this company straight out of his PhD because he this is what he knew he always wanted to do and um, he was clearly cut out to be that person from the beginning and so has had people around him who've been willing to give him the time and space and uh, investment money to bring this to fruition. This isn't something that happens overnight. This is a, uh, depending on the scale, this is a three-year or nine-year project, depending on how you look at it. And he has generated enough belief around him for people to give him time to deliver what he can do. And he's just doing that right now. So this is sort of a, an interesting moment in time that, you know, he's bringing to market the thing that he promised his people he would do a decade ago. And he's doing it. Well, and if he started 10 years ago, I don't think, was Tesla launched 10 years ago yet? Ah, oh, yeah, maybe. They were maybe in that space. I think they maybe just started with the Roadster. Yeah, yeah, with the yeah the Elise based roadster. Yeah, the Elise based, exactly right. Yeah, that's, that's a, the Lotus based thing, exactly right. Um, so maybe, and, and I think the whole idea of EVs was just starting, and people were understanding what they were capable of. But what RJ did two or three times is say, you know what, that they're capable of more than this. So this is a one dimensional approach that Company A had done. And then Company B comes along with a similar one-dimensional approach, and RJ wanted to put three dimensions into Rivian. And so that's what's taken him his passion to do over the last few years is to put those three dimensions in. And I think when you when you see a Rivian in the flesh, you'll understand it. That they are they are fully formed, fully dimensional vehicles. And that's really tribute to his vision and and, and dedication, you know, since the beginning. Yeah, I mean the the vehicles came out and you had two fully working uh I, I guess you'd call them mules test test vehicles but they came out and they looked like finished vehicles, you know, before yeah. we even saw concepts or anything. So Yeah, that's testament again to his attention to detail. You know, he could have come with half uh, and delivered half of that. And people would have said, "Oh, that's great." 
but he didn't. He delivered all of it. And so people say, that's amazing. And that's the difference between, you know, a, a I'm going to say a winner and a loser. That's the difference between, between someone who succeeds at what they're doing and someone who gets by at what they're doing. RJ will succeed because he, in the way he delivered those cars at LA, epitomizes and embodies everything about his approach to business. Yeah, I find it so interesting that there hasn't really been – I mean, Tesla released the Model X, but there hasn't been a pickup truck, an EV pickup truck that I know of. And even the Model X, I think, isn't really geared towards the traditional SUV oh, market. No, no. It's a different space. And, you know, people were, were so entrenched in the idea that you know, it's a fairly conservative buyer base in the pickup market. And, and that's true. But there are people – we did our research before I came in – the company did its research and talked to people on the coasts, particularly in sort of you know more progressive towns, and said, "Okay, what do you do the weekend? We like to snowboard, we like to ski, we like to surf, we like to take the dogs out or the trail bikes or whatever it is. What vehicles do you drive?" And oftentimes they drove a conventional truck, but they also drove maybe a Tesla or maybe something a little bit more progressive. And you know the question is, well, why don't you? have just one car that does both and of course that car didn't exist and so that's when the light starts to go on and you say well you know if we could make that car would you buy it and the the answer was so clearly yes that um we realized we'd found our space and it seems like in other parts of the country and world i mean it's you're gonna have a little bit of a, an effort educating people as to the benefits uh, i think ev electric vehicles get a bad rep a little bit, especially from the automotive uh, community, just because they people don't really know they can be fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that's okay. You know, when when gasoline powered vehicles came along, there was a disbelief that you know you you could create a whole network of having to provide liquid everywhere in the country that people people would have to put in their vehicles. And you know, in 1908, people thought it was impossible. And it's a bit like that change from steam to gas power, move from gas to electric. There, There is always a space in my heart for internal combustion engines. I love the way they sound. I love the sound of a good exhaust. I love a, you know, a, a hemi-powered thing rolling. They sound great. And they fulfill a, a purpose, and it, that was their time. But the next generation's time will be about electricity because it's really the only way to move people. And I think... Pickup now is around, you know, three to five percent of the vehicle market. That's fine. Once people drive a 300, 400 mile range vehicle, uh, electric vehicle, they will never go back. So every time someone converts to electric, they won't go back. So it's inexorable in a way. It, it won't, it won't reverse and it, it, the market will reach a tipping point, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years, whatever it will be, a tipping point where Electric vehicles will overtake sales of gasoline vehicles at new. Um, then that will happen in the used market, and then the whole infrastructure will build from there. I don't think it's – I think it's undeniable at this point that will happen. Uh, it's just a matter of when. I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what it does for these vintage vehicles. I mean, some of them are getting really expensive, like uh, Ferraris are selling at auction for millions. It, I, in my opinion, I think it's going to make it go up just because, yeah. you know, we're going to see – it's more, it's less supply, you know, and the, yeah. there's still going to be a demand, in my opinion, for, you know, those uh, internal combustion engines, just for the, the reasons you said, the sounds and things like that. Uh, I'm always, I'm, I'm always um, 
I'm always conflicted about the price of vintage vehicles. You know, I watch some of the car auction stuff and they're going for crazy money. And in a way, I don't like it because it puts those vehicles out of the range of, you know, ordinary people. But at the same time, I like the fact that they're worth enough to, to preserve because the more right. value is in those vehicles, the more you can be certain those vehicles will stay around. So I, I'm always conflicted about that, what's happening with vintage vehicles. Right. And at a certain point, I mean, it's it's a work of art. It's like buying a Picasso, right? The, especially the older, I mean, the older Ferraris that are going for so much, they're just, you know, pieces yeah. of art. Yeah. Yeah. I, a 250 is not in my future. <laughs> hey, you never know. Maybe Rivian will do really well and uh, you'll, yeah. you'll get a 250. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that would have to be an exponential uh, really well for that to happen for me. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I like the fact that they exist and I like the fact they're worth enough money to, to preserve, you know. What got you uh, originally into vehicles, into cars? So Yeah, I, um, I'm from the UK and I lived in Birmingham, UK, which is the home of the car industry there, much like Detroit here. And it's what you did, you know. Um, you worked in the Midlands and you were of a certain social bracket and you went into the car industry. It's what you did. And so I was 15 years old and I started work at what was British Leyland at the time, which ran Rover and MG and uh, Land Rover and Mini as four separate brands under the British Leyland Group. And then I... That my career went from there, but it was it was just part of your DNA. It was the car industry was everything. Yeah, it seems like uh, you know over in in Europe they have a lot more um, focus on motorsports and cars and things like that. Just growing up than even here in the U.S. I mean, you've got a much uh, larger F1 presence there. That's for sure. Yeah, that's right. There was always you know the the, the RSC. What became the WRC rally was always on mainstream TV on a Sunday afternoon, and you'd watch that, and there would always be a local race going by. And I think it's true in this country too, but it's it's a different kind of racing here, you know. And NASCAR was dominant for so long that it sort of killed off sponsorship because you know for racing to to take off, you have to have money behind it, and the sponsors really only want to spend their money on where the the big numbers are. And NASCAR dominated for so long, uh, not so much now. And it's it's you can see other types of racing. Formula E is interesting. You know, what's happening there and the global rallycross racing that happens here too. I think there's plenty of racing happens here, but it was um, people were more amenable to racing in the woods back back in Europe. I think is true. You know, if you found a patch of grass with a few trees in it, you'd throw a few cars around it. So <laughs> yeah, we don't do that as much here anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so you talked about Formula E. Does do you guys look at some of what they're doing when you are, you know, looking at your tech? Does anything from the Formula E developments apply to you guys as a EV company? Uh, in, in terms of tech, I think it's always great to see where the highest amount of development is. But you know, we're we're starting on our path here, and Formula E has you know, been around what five or six years now, and I think it's great to see what they're doing because it continues to bring awareness to the EV space. And I think the more manufacturers talk about evs the more the customer will start to understand that it's the future yeah i mean i i think uh the formula e has been an interesting uh, series to watch because when it first came out people really didn't like it and it's yeah. it's definitely improved though like they 
they at first they had to have two different cars, and I, I don't know if they're still doing that, but I know that they're trying to improve the tech so that you don't have to switch cars mid race. <laughs> so yeah, I know they were talking about you know you can follow the um, battery management strategy online, and there was you know there's that kind of and there's no doubt it, it sound is such a such a um, you know a big part of our lives that when the sound goes away, it does change things for sure. But the the precision and the um, the technology behind the the Formula E vehicles is fascinating in itself, and I, I don't think you know it'll ever sound as good as Formula One, but I'm not sure Formula One sounds as good as it used to either. So that's um, <laughs> yeah, a there's a lot of contention there as well with the new uh, restrictions and everything they have on those vehicles. Right. I, I've found it interesting. I, I I've always wondered if if people uh, like electric vehicle manufacturers could do something about I don't know, making the sound of the, um, like in, in more sports car oriented, uh, applications, but making the sound of the electric motors louder or something. Cause some of those can sound like superchargers if you really, uh, yeah. take sound deadening out. <laughs> it, it's a weird, it's a weird philosophy, isn't it? Because you know, there are companies around that, that do sound enhancements inside the vehicle that, so they'll enhance the sound of the, um, they'll basically put a, um, speaker system on the, on the exhaust system and pipe it back into the car to make the car sound like it's <laughs> louder and, and, and yeah, um, the I eight did that. <laughs> yeah. The I eight, I'm trying to, Audi did it, of course, and Volkswagen do it too. It's, um, I'm trying to think of the term for it. It's, it's like a little, little, um, esophagus thing that vibrates, but anyway, uh, so you can do it, but it, I, th- I think once it stops being organic, it, it changes things. Once you know it's being forced, right? It changes things. Now, of course, exhaust notes are always tuned, but it's it's different because at least the the pressure inside the exhaust that creates the note was real. You know, it's yeah. That's why I'm I'm more interested in seeing if maybe electric companies could, uh, or sorry, EV companies could figure out a way to make the real sound of the electric uh, motors come out. And I know a lot of those are pretty quiet, but you could get. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thought. It's interesting. I, th- I think we'll just have to become used to to appreciating different things uh, about racing in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it'll, it's interesting to see where it's going, and uh, you really have. And I'm a car enthusiast myself, and you have a lot in the, you know in the car enthusiast community that kind of are holding on a little bit. And I think there's going to be a place for both vehicles for quite a while. Uh, I think. You know, it'd be nice if people appreciated the EV uh, side of things a little bit too. I mean, the first time I drove, I, I drove a Model X and oh. huge SUV, right? And yeah. uh, someone said, put it in ludicrous mode. And that thing, you know, is a blast. <laughs> As I'm sure your vehicles are going to zero to 60 in three seconds, it, it's still, you know, pretty close to as fun, if not just as fun. So, right. You know, I've been lucky enough to go to the Goodwood. Um, racing uh to the revival and to festival a couple of times and the goodwood revival racing which is racing cars from the 40s 50s and 60s is just phenomenal it is one of the best things you'll ever do uh, if you ever get the chance go and do it you know mortgage your house sell your car go and do it. it's <laughs> yeah it's on my bucket list <laughs> yeah and it's one of those events where it, it it gives you hope or solace in that even if we are moving into a different age now, there will always be a way to experience those cars racing because they're worth a lot of money at 
but people are still prepared to put them out there and they actually get dinged up. It's incredible. There's a million dollar 250 out there that is seriously hard racing against, you know, a bread basket or something else on the circuit. And it's, it's a joy to watch. And, and I think that even if we do move into a new era of electric vehicle racing, there will always be space for those, those vintage sounds. Yeah, I mean, we still have the vehicles from the '40s racing. They're gonna they're gonna be around for quite a while, I think. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, 3D printing solves everything, you know. <laughs> and do you guys use a lot of 3D printing in uh, in the Rivian production at all? Uh, you know, I I don't know the answer to that. I, our production system is still being set up, but I would not imagine so. The the 3D printing still takes a while. So in, in terms of prototyping, you, that's, you, you do it for that. But in terms of day-to-day manufacture, you know, things have to be a little quicker still. Uh, at the very high-end, um, low-production stuff, I would imagine 3D printing is quite useful. But in, in mass production, it's it's not there yet for us. I would not think. So what kind of like materials are you guys working with on the vehicle? I mean, do you, have you played with carbon fiber? Is it traditional metal, aluminum? Yeah, we're we're using everything that's uh, that's available. So the the good thing about RJ, our founder and CEO, is that he is an automotive production expert. So he doesn't want to recreate anything that is already being done very well. There are some manufacturers in the world who are recreating the wheel just because they can. And there's no need to in some areas. So we're taking what the industry is very good at, which is in the main manufacturing, and applying that to Rivian. So it's the lean manufacturing method that people know and love. We're using tried and tested technology. We're using uh, aluminium panels, a steel frame. We do have Kevlar in our battery protection plates that sit underneath the vehicle. So you could basically shoot the bullet at it and it's going to be okay. Um, but we know that people need, you know, people need to know that the vehicles are, are trusted and are trustworthy and of course we have to pass all of those government regulations i told you about before so we um you know we're, we're building a vehicle that we know works and the technology we're adding to it is where we're taking the vehicle forward but in terms of manufacturing it, it will be manufactured as vehicles are being manufactured today in the main in the main so you're talking about the the government regulations, and I think um, well, from a car enthusiast standpoint, we know that there's a lot of uh, vehicles that they have over in Europe that we don't get in the U.S. or uh, things like uh, BMWs engines in Europe, or you have another you know 70 horsepower. Do you do you guys find any troubles trying to get uh, you know regulations passed for the U.S. with an electric vehicle, or is it a different process? Well, I, th- I think it's all developing now. You know, it's a very complicated uh, and, and deep subject. So I don't want to get too much into it. But the the whole space of autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, which are kind of separate, but they're running on twin paths, if you like. Uh, that whole space is under a lot of scrutiny now, and a lot of work is being done to make sure that the, you know, not just for safety, but in terms of compatibility and repair and and all of those things that that take up the time of a car company are all being worked through now and there are a lot of uh, people hours being put into making sure that we have a, a, a viable structure in place to to accept electric vehicles you know on the road in the next five to ten years 
what do charging stations look like, uh, how do fire departments deal with a, an electric vehicle crash. You know, all of those things have to be taken care of. Um, but it's been worked through because it, it's it's what needs to happen. Um, in terms of other other markets, um, the world is continuing to move towards, well, was continuing to move towards a general level of commonality in terms of vehicle testing and crash testing and so on. Uh, that's to the better. You know, once all world markets have the same crash test, it becomes easier to make a car that can suit every market. Uh, sometimes there are local market differences, but um, generally it's a better thing when when testing is common between countries. Right, yeah, you don't have to put in so many uh, R&D dollars just to, you know, crash a car a hundred times for different countries. <laughs> right, that's right. It's better when that's when it's more common. Speaking of crash testing, as an electric vehicle company, do you guys do the same, have to run through the same uh, set of procedures for crash testing and I don't know flip flipping testing or yeah so the um the, the test procedures are the uh the, the test results are the same the test requirements are the same you know whatever is around the occupant it's about occupant protection right so you have to make sure that your vehicle can run into a barrier at a certain speed and the occupant inside the vehicle is not you know injured or not impinged by that crash and so that's the same for electric vehicles as it is for any other vehicle did one advantage of electric vehicles is there isn't a ton and a half of uh, steel engine or iron engine in front of you that's going to push through into the cabin. So that is that helps in terms of crash design that we don't have to worry about that big block of metal being in front of you. But of course we have to create crumple zones and uh, airbag uh, protection and all the things that everybody else has to do. So, yeah, that's what I've seen is, you know, there's a huge cavity sort of in the front of the car that can act as a much bigger crumple zone than in traditional gasoline front powered cars. Right. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing quite a bit of uh, innovation and engineering there. And yeah, we're having a, we are having a blast. It's um, it's it's quite a good time to be in our space. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to what the future holds. I think we're going to see a lot more uh, electric vehicle companies coming out, and especially some of the bigger ones taking it a little bit more seriously. Uh, it's interesting that it takes the small companies really to pave the way uh, before the big companies will even take a look at it. <laughs> I think we're in an interesting space because you know you you're probably not old enough to remember, but in the 90s the idea was there would only be six car companies left because economies of scale were so great that. There, there was only room for six car companies and that's being proven untrue now because with electric uh, drive those great barriers to production which is basically engine design and development have gone away and so that means that smaller companies can come into the market and I think that we're at a space now where there's a general trust of new brands people expect things to work you know you probably didn't know the the brand that made your phone 10 years ago, but your phone works every day. You probably didn't, you, you might not even know who makes your TV, but your TV always works. You know, there's this general acceptance that things work these days. So that level of trust, I think, has risen amongst the buying public. And so when a new brand like Rivian comes along, there is already this understanding that, okay, it's a new car company. I don't know who they are, but I have a confidence in them because everything in my life works. So whereas in the 60s and 70s, maybe your dad or your grandfather or your grandmother 
would say, I'm only buying from, you know, Herbert, whatever brand, because they, they always work for me. Those other ones don't work. Uh, or they're unsafe or unreliable. That has all gone away. There's a general competence to the world now, I think. And that's helping new brands come along. Do you think that has to do with some of the uh, like regulations they're, they're making sure that these people are taken care of? I mean, you've got things like lemon laws and warranties and everything from these uh, automobile manufacturers. Yeah, all that helps. Competition, of course, is the great leveler. And, um, you don't survive in business very long if you're not providing good customer service. So that always helps too. Social media really helps customers because, you know, you're four bad reviews away from no one going to watch your movie, right? First thing I did today was click on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> right, I mean, you know? it's interesting uh, piece of capitalism is that traditionally, I mean, it, it makes a better quality uh, product. At least yeah. I've seen that. Well, that's right. So it drives you in that way. Um, the regulation helps too. Um, but it was always mainly about reliability, you know, things breaking down and production processes and the understanding of design and the implications of design in production processes have, has become so well developed and quality levels are so high now. You know, it's one in a thousand thing breaks. You get disappointed. Whereas when I was at, you know, do manufacturing engineering, 30 years ago, if one in 10 failed, you felt lucky, you know, it's, it's a different world now. Everything works, man. Well, and I think with the, with electric vehicles, I mean, with a combustion engine, you have so many different components that can, can break. And it seems like, you know, even though they're, they're complicated pieces of machinery, it seems like they've gotten simpler, right? You have the battery, you have the motor, you know, you've got some wires, but, <laughs> and then a lot of computer components. It seems yeah. like, well, moving parts is always difficult. Moving parts is always a problem because things that move create friction and friction creates heat and heat is the enemy of all things. You know, it's, it's, we're moving to a solid state system where things don't move or at least don't move at the physical level uh, anymore. And that creates a more reliable environment. You know, uh, anything that spins, twists, rotates, jumps up and down eventually wears out. And, so, I mean, in terms of Rivian, in terms of the vehicles, if you were to buy one, what, what sort of maintenance are you expecting? Do you have to service the motors or batteries? How, like what, what sort of maintenance do you expect on a vehicle like that? Well, one of the, the good, uh, one of the advantages, uh, another of our advantages is over the air maintenance. So we will be able to monitor and, and, um, repair to a certain extent your battery system over the air. We can provide updates to the vehicle. We can flash, if you like, your vehicle over the air so you can wake up in the morning. There's a Rivian 2.0 in your driveway with a different, you know, display system if you want it. And, and so all of that stuff is, it means that there will be less, fewer times you have to visit the, the service shop. Of course, sometimes you'll have to take a car in for service. If you bend it, break it, you know, something wears out or doesn't work properly, you'll have to take it in. We'll have a, a network of, of service partners that you will go to because you don't want to drive your, our, our aim in our first couple of years is to sell 40,000 Rivians over two years. And it's not, that's not a lot in global scale at all, but that means you, you don't want to have to drive a hundred miles to go to get your vehicle service. So we will have authorized trained service partners local to you that will provide all of your service needs for you for the ones that we're not providing over the air. 
Oh, interesting. So do you think that these service partners are, you know, they're going to have to be able to work on electric motors and that's not a traditional mechanic. So you guys are actually going to be providing training and courses for mechanics or how does that work? Yeah. So, so electric vehicles are interesting, right? Because you, you still have that combination of mechanics, you know, uh, the mechanics of a vehicle, things that go up and down and wear out like suspension systems. They're still a I, there, that's a, a function of physics. And, uh, then you have the, the electric side of the business, which is much more difficult to see in terms of a battery cell. And then the whole connectivity of the vehicle too, which is, you know, IT software. So the, those three things are coming together. And over time, the amount of mechanics in the vehicle is reducing and the amount of invisible, if you like, software connectivity is increasing. That, that's what's happening to the vehicle. I think the technician, the role of the technician changes over time too. Um, it's, it's even now it's the role of a technician is not much about getting your hands dirty. You know, a lot of it is diagnostics and that will continue. And um, then things become, uh, it becomes a much more of a, an intellectual operation as a diagnostic technician than it was, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting the way that the it's all kind of changing to be uh, serviced remotely, and um, it's not the same as uh, me having to fix my my car in my garage. You know, <laughs> think, you think about it like your phone. You know, your phone will update over the air, and you'll get two point But if the screen cracks or your battery fails, you have to take it into the shop. You know, it's that same space. Yeah. So do you guys uh, speaking of you know? fixing things and do you guys have the you know, warranties that you provide how does that system work do you pay yeah. Rivian to get fixes or yeah we the cars will be fully covered by warranty you know these things take a while to develop and fine print and all those things that the good lawyers work on but um that you can like i said to you the, the market is incredibly competitive so you can be sure the only way we survive is by having a market place warranty uh, that is equivalent or better than anybody else's so that of course will be in place at the time you can buy a ribbon you can of course put a thousand dollars down to buy a rivian in today that gets you to the front of the line and www.rivian.com and you put your thousand dollars in it's your money not mine we don't touch it. it stays in a trust and it just means we know you we we know who you are we can get to talk to you we can send you a nice t-shirt and we can start the conversation it helps us too because we know if if you're buying a Rivian, you're interested in a Rivian, we can see your kind of profile and it helps us understand, you know, people like you maybe would also like one. So you're doing the whole online ordering process. Yes. You guys won't have like a dealership network per se? No, in most markets we will do um, we will do direct sales. It may be uh, the, the current online system is for ordering, uh, is for deposits. Um, but we'll do direct sales um, through a variety of physical stores. Where we are required to by law, we'll have a dealership partner in those markets that require that. But in the main, we'll try to do direct sales from Rivian in a physical way to you. Okay, that's really similar to what Tesla's doing, but they had, uh, I don't remember which states it were, but some of the states said they weren't allowed to sell there anymore. Yeah, right. Uh, so you're trying to partner with some of the physical dealers in, in situations like those states that have those... Uh, uh, anti-consumer laws in my opinion but <laughs> well, uh <laughs> say but okay yeah but so uh, then uh i don't think we talked about cost what does one of these things cost oh that's a great question the 
base vehicle will cost after federal taxes 61,500 for the truck and 64,000 65,000 for the SUV. Oh, that's pretty is that do you have options and a list of options oh, yeah. that comes with or we haven't spec those out yet and we will for sure try to sell you one higher grade if if you come and talk to us but we will make that vehicle available. Okay, so is it things like, uh, I mean, upgrades, would it be like an extended battery life, or yeah. do they all kind of have the same platform? There are three battery sizes, uh, 135, uh, 185, I'm sorry. Um, wow, that's just gone from my head. Incredible. But there are, thir- there are three battery sizes available, so obviously price depends on that, and then various capabilities in the vehicle and various uh, functionality and trim levels and so on. But the base vehicle starts at $61,500. That's, I mean, that's pretty cheap if you... Yeah, 105, 135, and 185. Sorry, I forgot that. It's pretty cheap if you consider... I mean, I, I've looked at a lot of the interior um, shots, and I uh, recommend anyone listening to check out the interior. It's pretty beautiful. I mean, they it seems like really high quality. It seems like some of the competitors would be in the class of Range Rover. Yes. And... I mean, for the price, you're you're talking about what a fully loaded Acura SUV. <laughs> so, yeah. we, I think it's a very competitive price. And like I say, we'll quite happily talk to you about one that's higher up the price ladder if you if you like. But um, yeah, that sixty one thousand is an incredible incredible buy. So I, another question that I was interested to talk about it. Do you think these will ever be used as like a work vehicle, a work truck vehicle, like you know for gardeners or uh, construction workers, anything like that? Yeah, I think for uh, regular. So we, when you say gardeners, for sure. I mean this this is a great vehicle for somebody who uh, we have actually had interest from municipalities who would like zero emission pickups for their state parks or national parks or, uh, you know, uh, local parks, which is a great thing. So for gardeners, sure, that stuff, if you're looking, you know, if you're in an F-350, you know, double bed, super duty, that's, that's not what we are. If you're a, if you're a heavy industry construction worker loading up girders in the back of the vehicle every day, then that's not us. But for regular, you know, if you're a, a landscape gardener working in town and you'd like to roll around town in something a little less, um, little less impactful, then a, a, a Rivian R1T is for you. So it's not like a super heavy duty, you know, right. it's geared. It's trying to be a, a solid all arounder that can. I mean, it has a lot of things that it can do. So it's interesting that it, you guys are able to uh, accomplish that. That's right. That's right. Well, awesome. I mean, I, I have a couple more questions for you, but I think we're getting yeah. near the end of my list of things I wanted to talk about. Right. Um, I, as it sounds like you're pretty much a, an automotive enthusiast, you went to Goodwood, uh, you love racing, things like that. Do you have a dream car for yourself? Uh, you know, if if you could drop a, an E-Type to my house, that would be just great. <laughs> it, I'd even, I'd maybe even take the electric conversion that's out there now. But yeah, if you could drop a, you know, an early '60s E-Type in pale blue to my house, that would be just fine. So yeah, you got the perfect one picked out already <laughs> for when Rivian takes off. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. 
And um, just uh, for any listeners, I guess, interested in getting in uh, the automotive space or working with marketing with these kind of companies, do you have any advice for someone that's maybe just starting out or someone that's looking to transition uh, up the ladder a little bit? Yeah, I think always stay aware of the industry you're in, you know, make, make it a hobby. And if it's not a hobby, then maybe this isn't the, the work for you. Um, you know, if you find yourself reading about cars in your spare time, then maybe the car space is for you. So if you're in a marketing company and this is your hobby, try to find a marketing company that's associated with the car industry and you'll gravitate towards it. But don't make it a false fit. You know, I, I see so many people come into the industry and say, yeah, I'm going to get into cars. I'm going to read magazines. I'm going to do all this stuff. And they don't do it. And so they don't, they don't provide as much value to the business because they're just not as plugged in. Now, having said that, I, I think if you're, if you're too much of an enthusiast, if you're too much of a Kool-Aid drinker, that can be a detriment too. You have to be able to see what's good and bad about your industry too. So if you're, if you're totally, you know, it's like being a, you know, my son's a huge Eagles fan and can never see anything wrong with the players. And sometimes there's something wrong with the players and you have to be able to see it. So it's, it's being interested in the space and having an awareness for the space and a general understanding of the space without being too much of a, a Kool-Aid drinker. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, having a level head about, uh, yeah. you know, look at things logically as opposed to, I mean, we all have brands and marks that we love and right. would love to work for and be a part of, but also understanding that there's flaws and weaknesses that could be improved. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a, an understanding in the industry, and I say this to all my journalist friends out there, that every journalist would bankrupt a company within, you know, three months because they would build the Homer vehicle, you know, that had everything on it. And that's the same with sports. I'm a big soccer fan, and I would bankrupt my team within six months because I would buy every player out there. <laughs> uh, right. you know, and then sometimes you have to run a car company as a business too, so it has to. You have to balance out that enthusiasm and need and wish to produce the best vehicle possible. With um, plenty of companies have gone bankrupt trying to produce the best vehicle in the world, and those companies are no use to anybody. So it's it's. It, it's about viability too. And so it's that sense of keep your feet on the ground, keep yourselves in business and make the best car you can. Yeah. I think even some of the big players get that wrong sometimes. I mean, we see, uh, we see prototypes and, and, you know, designs come out that are nothing like the car that ends up being produced. Yeah, I also see it the other way too. You look at a car and you think, man, for $50 more, they could have made a decent product. And somebody in the in the wrong department saved fifty bucks, you know, and then yeah. the, has to discount the car by five hundred dollars to sell it. And that was false economy. So you know, for a nicer grade of leather or better stitching or whatever it would be, that vehicle would have been just a bit more appealing. So sometimes the the wrong people win, and that's true in any business. It seems like you'd have to kind of you know find a balancing uh, a perfect balance point. It's like a balancing act, and yeah. I think that's why it's so interesting that you guys were able to get a price starting at sixty one thousand with everything included in the vehicle. <laughs> well, yeah, well, when you say everything, most things we'll we'll charge you for a few more things. But yes, it's I think it's important for us. You know, we're starting out here. Um, we want to make sure that people understand we we're, we're providing them with good value. Um, we're providing them with a very nice premium vehicle, but we don't expect them to pay over the odds for it. They should pay the right price for the right vehicle. Yeah, I think it's it's you know at the upper end of uh, I guess you know 
traditional vehicles, but it's not anywhere near like a high class luxury right. SUV cost. And I think that'll really open the market up a little bit because, you know, when Tesla's, the, the Model S's are so expensive, a hundred, a hundred grand when they launched and it, it didn't really provide that easy accessibility for the everyday person, right? And now we're getting closer with 60. And I think really once we, the, the technology improves and everything, you know, gets cheaper and we have $30,000 fully electric vehicles, we'll see a lot more people, uh, be starting to switch over. And right. it's interesting, interesting time that we're in. <laughs> it really is. Uh, th- this is a great chat. Thank you so much for giving me yeah. on your show. Glad to, glad to have you on, Michael. Thanks so much. It was, uh, I loved uh, learning about it. Okay, I hope we can speak again. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on our first ever Launch Control podcast. I'm really excited to start this series and hopefully talk to a bunch of other uh, people in the automotive space. I'm trying to talk to you know car manufacturers and race car drivers and yeah, other media people like in YouTube, things like that. Just hope, hopefully provide a podcast that people like listening to because I was looking for an automotive podcast that just talked about all these different things and kind of went behind the scenes a uh, little bit more than what's out there. You know, there's a lot of car reviews that do a great job and I was trying to look for something a little bit more than that. So hopefully um, you guys have found that in this podcast and stay tuned for the next one. I'm hopefully going to be providing at least one of these a month. Uh, if I can get more guests than that, that'd be great. If anybody knows of any guests or anybody that might be interested in coming on the podcast, feel free to reach out. We've got a website that's launchcontrolpc.com, and we've also got Instagram and Twitter, so follow us on social media, share it with your friends, give this podcast a, a like, thumbs up, uh, whatever medium you're watching it on, feel free to share it. Love the support. Thanks, everybody.